Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. What I want to draw your attention to tonight is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Because what I said a few weeks ago, last week obviously we didn't meet because of the, of the black ice, and I didn't want anybody to fall on our church parking lot and get, get hurt. Um, yeah, sue, sue us. <laughs> so, but Philippians 1.27 is really a, um, a transition verse in chapter 1 that launches into another part of the book. And so what Paul says there in verse 27 of chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's Paul's desire for them? That they would live a life worthy of the gospel. That they would be unified, they would be standing side by side, they would live a life worthy of the gospel. And so Paul's going to continue this theme as we go into chapter 2. And this whole idea of living a life worthy of the gospel, what he's going to focus on in verses 1-11 through 11 is how the gospel empowers our ability to have Christ-like humility. So everything that we're going to look at tonight is really wrapped up in this whole idea of, of humility. And you'll see that as we read this together. But that's the key word, humility. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be hanging out tonight. Here we go. <clears throat> so, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <laughs> but each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, in verse 1, he gives us four truths about what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Now, many translations start with if. Even the ESV does. So, if there's any encouragement. What does if sound like? Maybe. There may or may not be that there. Actually, in the Greek, there's a little bit of a scholarly debate. I actually prefer to take the translation since. That word, that Greek little um, preposition can be 
if or since. I really think it, it's basically, I think Paul's saying, in light of everything that I've talked about, these things are true. I don't think, the, the, I don't think these are probabilities of if these things are true. I think this, since these things are true, complete my joy. So what are these issues of Christ-like humility? First thing he says there in verse 1, what does he say? If there's any encouragement in Christ. Does anybody have a different word in their translation besides encouragement? Let's, where, where Verse 1. Encouragement. Mine says consolation. Consolation, encouragement. Literally, that's talking about our secure union with Christ. If you have any encouragement in Christ, being in Christ, you're secure in Christ, what did chapter 1 verse 6 say? He who began a good work in you will complete it. So what does it mean to be secure in Christ? Well, Romans 8.1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. So, when you're in Christ, why does that give you encouragement to be in Christ? The encouragement comes from the fact that you are secure in Him, you're in this union with Him, you're in fellowship with Him, you can't lose Him and He can't lose you, you are united forever. Okay? And Paul's going to expound upon that with the second thing. What does he say? So, since there's this union, this encouragement with being in Christ, any comfort from being loved by Christ. Does anybody have a different word besides comfort? Any comfort from love. Now, here's the question. Are you comforted by loving Christ? Are you comforted by Him loving you? Yes. Probably both are true. But really, this passage is talking more about... Christ's love for us. What's one of the first songs maybe as a kid you learned to sing in church? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What, what does being loved by Jesus, should that bring us comfort? So Paul's saying, listen, you guys are in Christ. You're loved by Christ. This should bring encouragement. This should bring comfort. Nothing more powerful than being encouraged by being in Christ. And then, in the third thing he says here is we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Any participation in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So God has given us in the Gospel... This security in Christ, being loved by Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then it almost sounds like Paul repeats himself. What's the fourth thing he says there in verse 1? Any affection and sympathy. That word affection is a strong word in the Greek. It means Jesus' guts spilled out. Or that he is deeply moved to the core of his being. We have Christ affectionately loving us. It's the same word used in Matthew 9.36 when Jesus saw the crowds. 
Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion, same word for them, because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Pages. You're missing pages. Did she yes. not? We're missing two, three, or two. Is it every odd? Four. Is it every odd? Um, yeah. yeah. We've got the odd well, you're just going to have to learn to listen and write notes. All odds, no evens. All odds, no evens. Yep. How um, odd Does somebody want to go find Sharina? Um, she's in the youth. She's in the sanctuary. Oh, Actually, somebody go find Tarina in the in the sanctuary and just ask her if she'd be willing to make copies that are. No, she'll find them. Okay. Let's. All right. So before you guys all freak out because you don't have notes, let me reiterate verse one. Now I'm not confused. Okay. Like, what's he talking about here? In verse. One, Paul has gone overboard to show us how much we are loved by Jesus and how much the gospel means to us. What's he saying there? You have encouragement with Christ. You have this union with Christ. You're not guilty. You're accepted. You have comfort from his love. He loves you deeply. You have this participation, this fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and then you are affectionately loved by Jesus. He he repeats himself. Just so you get it. All of these things are true about the gospel. So if these things are true, what Paul's going to say is this should motivate you to be unified, to be humble. Now, let me ask you about motivation here for a moment. What's better motivation? Okay, I'll give you two ways to motivate you. Let's say we're not getting along as a church and uh, there's some problems in the family and there's some disagreements and, and you guys aren't getting along. One way I can motivate you is this. You guys better get your act together and start acting like Christians and start doing what you know you need to do because I'm the pastor and I said so and God's going to thump you and you may be in danger of losing your salvation and going to hell. So get your act together. Is that a good way to motivate? What are you going to be like? Uh, thanks, Pastor Sean. Okay. Now, okay, pretends on what you want to motivate. Okay. The other way I can motivate you is listen, guys. We are all sinners, but Jesus has saved us. He loves us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's rely on who we are in the gospel and what Jesus says about us so that we can get along. And let's use the power that we have in Christ to move forward. What's the better motivation? The second. Because the second motivation comes from the gospel. The first motivation comes from guilt. And so what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to motivate them. There's nothing wrong with motivation. Paul is writing to them to motivate them because you see there in verse 2 the main verb in this section. And the main verb is what he's trying to drive home. And so here's what he says in, main, in verse 2. Make my joy complete or be complete. He wants, as the pastor, in prison, writing back to the Philippian church, he's telling them, you guys need to do something to make my joy complete. I'm in prison. I can't be out there to minister to you anymore. But there's one thing you can do to make me joyful. And because all these gospel blessings are true, you have the power to do it, who you are in Christ. 
And so he's saying that one of the chief things that you can help me as your pastor is to make my joy complete. Now, what would be a, a good thing for us as a church to be thinking about in relation to humility? Do we ever want to have the attitude that we're the biggest, baddest church on the block because we're right behind Home Depot and we got this big sign out there and we got this big parking lot and everybody comes to our church because we've got the greatest preaching, the greatest music, the greatest kids program, the greatest youth group. We got the best looking people and we got the most money in town. So you better come to Emmanuel Baptist Church because we're, we're it. Do we ever want to have that attitude? No. The moment we have that attitude is the moment that we... Is she going to get those for us? Okay, thanks. So what Paul's saying is, listen, Philippians, the gospel makes you humble. And the way you're going to complete my joy is by being humbly unified. Let's, let's, maybe that's a good way to put it. I want you as a church to be humbly unified. Or let's put it a different way. We want you guys to be unified. We want you guys to have unity and humility. So let me ask you, are those two wonderful qualities that we would like to see in a church? Unity and humility. Okay? What is unity? Togetherness. Okay, like-minded. You can tie two cat's tails together and throw them over a fence and they're united. <laughs> but are they unified? No. Okay. Like-minded. So, I heard the word like-minded, I heard togetherness. Okay, we're going to look at that in just a moment. What's humility? <laughs> Silence. It's, it's being willing to back down out of an argument. Or okay. Not necessarily to be rolled over. Okay. You know, rolled over, but, you know, yeah. humility, willing to help out other people yeah. and... Yeah. Take your time. Okay, good. All right, so what Paul's going to do here, and I know you don't have your sheets, so just chill out. And I don't know where you are on your sheets, but I've got my notes and I've got the PowerPoint, so that's all I care about at this point. You guys can, you guys can fill in the blanks until the, until the copies come, okay? So I think this happened one time before where every odd page got, so anyway. I don't have any even pages. Even pages, whatever. We're all odd tonight, aren't we? Okay. You some so it's mixed? No. No, it's just odd. Okay, it's all you don't you have odd pages or you don't have odd? Okay, so you guys are all odd. Okay. Alright. Alright, so what Paul so the question is how is Paul how does Paul want the church to make his joy complete? He's going to give four exhortations for us to adopt a Christ like humility. Okay, so first of all, there's four of these. First of all, in verse 2, what does he say? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. If you have an NIV, it may say same attitude. Does anybody have something that says attitude, mind? Okay, it's very important. That word attitude, mind, is another key word in Philippians. It shows up ten times in Philippians. Attitude or mind. Same mind, same attitude. Okay? So Paul wants us to be thinking 
the same way, all going in the same direction. Okay, so it's easier to maybe draw this because of the, um, the way that it's structured in the original language. There's, I don't want to bore you guys with Greek, but there's participles and there's, ma there's main verbs. So I said there's four things. Okay, number one, he says, I want you guys to have the same mind or the same attitude. Now, underneath this main category, um, there's three subheadings or three particular ways that he wants them to have the same mind. So, same mind is the main idea, three subparticles under, subparticles, sub, sub things underneath it. We haven't gotten to the second big thing yet, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so let me give you the three ways that he tells you uh, to have the same attitude, okay? So, subheading number one. Keep on, I'm trying to write this on the board since, I don't know if you have it on your sheet or not. So, okay, okay. Subheading one, keep on continually loving one another. What does he say there? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Having the same love. It's in the present tense. Keep on continually having love for one another. 1 John tells us, in 1 John 3, 16-18, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, this is important, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It's one way to love. I, like, I can tell Don, I love you. And that means a lot. But is it more important for me to show her I love her in demonstrable ways? And he's saying, listen, in First John he's saying, it's good to tell people we love them, but the real way we love people is through actions. Is, is it worked out now? I'm getting copies slowly. Okay. So these, these ones have all the papers. Okay, they just had odds on there, so. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so, number one, have the same attitude. How do you have the same attitude? You keep on loving one another. As you love one another, you're having, you're having the same attitude, you're having the same love. Okay, subheading number two under that big category. Keep on continually being united. Literally, be one-souled. That's a weird word, isn't it? Be one sold. What does that mean? <clears throat> to be one sold. To be united. Go back up to chapter 1, verse 27. Let's read that again, because that's a key verse. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for faith in the gospel. You're together. You're united. You're walking in unison. It's this whole idea, like I said a couple weeks ago, where we're all arm in arm, like an army, marching together, holding each other up, advancing the gospel together as unified in the gospel. So keep on loving one another. Be united together. And then subheading number three, 
Keep on having the same purpose. Be one, be, be, have the same purpose. So have the same love, be united, have the same purpose. Being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, over what? Let's ask this question. It's a very important question. If we're to be united, if we're to love one another, if we're to have the same purpose, I've got to ask the question, what's the purpose we have to be united around? There's a lot of things that people are united around. We are the United States of America. You can go to, um, like, the Lions Club and be united around um, community service. Boy Scouts are united over a purpose. Um, you may have purposes in your job. What is the purpose that united? What's, what unites everything together? We'll go back to chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 14. What are they to be united in? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We are to be united around the gospel. If we are united around the gospel, the message, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, that is our one purpose, that's our one goal, that's why we are united, the gospel unites us together. So, the first way we can make Paul's joy complete, so this is the main verb, make my joy complete, okay Paul, how do we do that? We make your joy complete by having the same mind, the same attitude, sameness. We have the same attitude. Okay, under that big category, three subcategories. Keep on loving one another, be one soul or united, and be united in purpose, and it links all the way back to the gospel. That's number one. Okay. Secondly, the second way we make Paul's joy complete Paul's going to address the issue of ambition. Where's your ambition? And is it a godly ambition or an ungodly ambition? What does he say there in verse 3? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing out of what? Selfishness, ambition. When Paul says do nothing there, it's in a double negative in the original language, which really means no, not ever. Don't ever, ever, ever do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's interesting, that word selfish ambition. I did a study on that word a few years ago. It doesn't show up a lot in the Bible, but it really means... A greedy heart that is self-centered. You guys remember the um, 80s movie Wall Street? Michael Douglas. His character was Gordon Gecko. He had that infamous speech. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but it, here's, here's lines from his, his speech in that movie. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the es essence of the evolutionary spirit. You could put that on a bumper sticker and say, that's the mantra of America today. 
Greed is good. It's right. That's what the world we live in, right? But Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from greed. Do nothing from rivalry. Galatians 5.26 says this. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, no selfish ambition. Don't be selfish. Don't be greedy. Don't be um, selfish, I guess is the word I keep using. Don't be selfishly greedy and ambitious. What else does he say there in verse 3? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Does anybody have the King James? What does the King James say? Does it say vainglory? What does verse 3 say? Anybody have... Does yours say vainglory? Vainglory. Does anybody have a different word besides conceit? Rivalry. Rivalry. Okay. It really, actually, the King James really comes pretty close. It, the word conceit really means empty glory. Empty glory. Here's the way to think about it. In an attempt to try to greedily elevate ourselves, what are you doing? You're bringing glory to yourselves. And... What type of glory is it that you bring to yourselves? Is it God glory or is it an, it's an empty glory? So when you act in selfishness, when you act greedily, when you are putting yourself out there and you are bringing glory to yourself, it's an empty glory. So think about this. What does not bring glory to God? Selfish ambition. Greed. It doesn't bring glory to God. Because what's it all about? It's about you. It's about yourself. Okay? So, number one, Paul, make my joy complete, have the same attitude. Number two, do not, okay, this is negative, no, not ever, do not ever, ever, ever do anything out of greedy, selfish ambition or empty glory, drawing attention to yourselves. Okay, here's the third thing that he exhorts us to do to make his joy complete. He exhorts us to humility in the second half of verse 3. So this is a not, don't do this, this is a do, but in, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Consider, is humility something that is elevated in our culture today? What do, we, do we see the exact opposite? What do most people prize? Somebody who's loud, who puts... Who, who usually gets to the top in the world standards? The person that pushes, 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 advances, puts themselves out there, the person that's greedy, the person that's selfish, the person that's always drawing attention to themselves, the person that's loud and proud is the one that usually gets away with stuff. But Paul's saying it's just the exact opposite in the Christian's life. Instead of seeking your own glory, instead of being greedy, instead of being selfish, you need to be humble. And how, how are you humble? What does he say there? In humility, what are we to do? Count others more significant than yourselves. When Paul uses that word count others, it really means to give attention to. Concentrate on others. 
Our focus should not be on ourselves, but on others. That's hard to do, isn't it? To consider others more than yourself? Now, wait a minute. That's very difficult. To consider other people's as more significant than yourself? Because what do we tend to do? We are most concerned with who? Me. And I will be at the first of the line. And Don will raise her hand and say, Amen, he should not. <laughs> no. She lives with me. My, my kids live with me. So they know that I can be, you can be too, but I'm just talking about me. I can be selfish. I can be greedy. I can want to be like a glory, glory God, wanting the glory to come to myself. And the last thing I want to think about is putting other people in front of myself. Because it's human nature to want to, everything to be about you. That requires a special kind of love like we have for our children. Yeah. And we are God's children. Yes, and that's a good point, Betty. It requires a special kind of love that you and I cannot produce in and of ourselves. That's why in verse 1 he reminds us of the power we have in Christ. You're united with Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. The only way you can do these things is because of who you are in the gospel. We can't get away from that. It's not just willpower. So in humility, count others more important than yourself. Okay, here's the fourth one. The fourth way Paul wants us to make our joy complete is in our focus, our attention. Where's our focus? Where's our attention? What does he say there in verse 4? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In verse 4, he tells us to look out for the interests of others, to be others-focused. The word look out literally means to keep a sharp eye upon. We are to be intently looking at the needs of others instead of ourselves. Okay, so for review, I've written this on the board. I think, does everybody have a sheet now? Yeah. We're all good? Okay. Okay. All right. So, for review, what are the four main ways that we can make Paul's joy complete as believers in Christ? Number one, we can have the same attitude. Number two, we cannot be selfish and ambitious. Number three, we can be humble and lowering ourselves. And number four, we can look out for the needs of others. Now, let's just look in the mirror. And this is not going to be confession time. It's going to be a rhetorical question. But which of these do you struggle with the most? I didn't ask you, do you struggle with these? Because that's a dumb question. I know you struggle with them because I do. Which one of these do you really struggle with? Is it, man, I really have a hard time loving other people. Man, I really struggle with greed and drawing glory to myself. I struggle with humility. I really don't look out for others. I'm always looking out for myself. Okay. Now, verse 5 is where it gets a little mind-boggling. Verse 5 is a hinge verse. Paul almost stops you in your tracks. What does verse 5 say? It's a command. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Other translations may put it this way. Have the same attitude as Jesus. Think the same way as Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. 
Paul's telling us, is commanding us. Okay, Philippians, I'm going to stop in your tracks. You've got to be like Jesus in your attitude. In the way you think, and the way you love, and the way you act. Now, that's a tall order, isn't it? Have the same attitude as Jesus. So how does that happen? How do you begin to cultivate the same attitude as Jesus? Because it doesn't come naturally. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now what does it say? We are being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree to another. So some, are, some of us are growing at different rates. But what's the key? Beholding the glory of the Lord. I've said this many times. I will say it again. The more you look at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. You, what you look at, you begin to look like. Thought about that? <coughs> what you look at, you begin to look like. In other words, what you put your time and your attention and your energies in, that's what you begin to reflect. And if it's not Christ, then you're not going to be transformed as readily or as quickly or as, or as heartily as it would be if you're not looking at Jesus. So we need to continually be looking at Christ in the Scriptures and, and, and asking Him to reveal Himself to us in the Scriptures as we read the Bible and see the glory of the Lord. And then as we do that, as we read the Scriptures, as we spend time in prayer, He's going to transform us to look more like Him. Romans 8.29 says that's what we were predestined to. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has predestined us to look like Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, if we take all these verses together, the sovereign Spirit of God is doing an internal work in us to transform us and conform us to becoming more and more like Jesus. This is the ultimate test of discipleship. Am I acting, thinking, speaking, relating, and responding like Jesus? Am I walking in a manner worthy of my calling? When people look at me... Do they see glimpses of Jesus? Have this mind in you. Have the same attitude as Jesus. Think like Jesus. Now, Paul could have stopped right there and said, that's what you need to do. I've given you the gospel in verse 1. I've given you the commands in verses 2 through 4. And then I've given you the tall order Act like Jesus. And he could have stopped right there. But he's going to do something very, very powerful. In verses 6 through 11, he's going to give us an illustration of what Jesus' attitude was. Okay, so what was Jesus' attitude? If we, in verse 5 says, you're to have the same attitude, you're to have the same mind as Jesus. Question mark then, Paul, what was Jesus' attitude? If I'm to have the same attitude as Jesus, if I'm to have the same mind as Jesus, if I'm to think like Jesus, what, what was that? Well, I'm glad you asked, Paul says, because I'm going to give it to you in verses 6 through 11. 
in verses 6 through 11, this comprises an ancient hymn that has been called the Carmen Christi, or the hymn to Christ as God, which many scholars believe was sung by the early church to remind them of the glories of Christ. Now, there's two purposes for a hymn. What does a hymn do? Like when we sing hymns, what are, what's the purpose of a hymn? Worship God. Okay, to so worship. What else? To teach. To teach. This hymn has two purposes. And those are the exact same two purposes. Number one, it has, its first purpose is to instruct us on the personal work of Christ. It's going to go into the deep waters of theology. It's going to instruct us on who Jesus is. But it's not just going to instruct us. This hymn is also going to, number two, inspire us to worship Jesus by imitating the same attitude. So the, the hymn has two things. When we read this hymn together, we're going to be instructed. We're going to be taught the deep theology of who Christ is, what he did, and how he did have the same attitude, and how he did lower himself, and how he did humble himself. And, and it's also going to be a motivation. It's going to be an inspiration for us to adopt that same type of attitude. So what Paul's going to do here in this hymn, he's going to give three overarching ways that Jesus voluntarily humbled himself that are used to both instruct and inspire us. Remember the key word is humbled himself. What has Paul just been saying all along? Got to be humble. No selfish ambition. Walk in unity. Consider others better than yourself. Okay, I'm going to show you what that looks like. I'm not just going to give you an abstract. I'm going to show you exactly what that looks like with Jesus. And it's going to be a progression. So I'm going to draw this progression on the board here. It's not in your notes, but I think it's a, it's a visual. It's going to start in heaven. And then it's going to go to earth. And then it's going to be Jesus becomes a servant. And then the very lowest point, it's going to go to the cross. We'll see this downward progression of how Jesus humbled himself. Where did he start out? He started out in heaven. Where did he come? He came to earth as a man. Did he come to earth as an exalted man that was like lived the high life? No, he came as a servant. And eventually, where did he go? What was the lowest point he went to? The cross. So if you want to see what humility looks like, we're going to see Jesus do this downward progression from heaven to earth as a servant to the cross. And that's exactly what Paul does. So he's going to show us three overarching ways that Jesus humbled himself. So let's look at these. Three voluntary and deliberate actions. And I say they're voluntary and deliberate. Nobody forced Jesus to do these things. He did these because he is God. And he voluntarily, of his own will, did these and deliberately did these. God didn't have a gun in his head up in heaven and say, Jesus, you better do this because you're my son. It's not the way the Trinity works. Jesus freely did these in obedience to um, the will of his Father. So, first of all, Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, we need to be very careful here. Let me explain this. Look at verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay. Let's just be very clear. This is deep theology. We don't want to get... There have been more heresies out of this passage of Scripture than any other parts of the New Testament when it comes to Jesus. 
because of mistranslating, misunderstanding this passage of Scripture. Jesus is God. Jesus shares in all the attributes of deity. Jesus was not created, unlike what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jesus has always been and always will be. He is the great I Am. Now, how do I know that? Well, there's other places in the Bible, but let's just look at this text. What does it mean that Jesus always existed in the... What does your Bible say? Verse 6, though he was in the form. Does anybody have a different word besides form? The form of God. Okay. The word... Wait a minute. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. The amazing truth is Jesus and I has always been fully God. The Greek grammar is very precise... It is a present active particle, which means that Jesus has always existed in the form of God. Though he was, he was in the form of God. That means continual existence in all eternity. Jesus has always been existing in the form of God. What does it mean? Well, the word he existed, or he exists, or he has always been, is not the usual Greek word for being. The word Paul uses emphasizes the essence of a person's nature, his continuous state of being. The original language, you could say it this way, Jesus really existed in the form of God. It was his true, continual existence in the form of God. The form of God. It's the word morph or morphe. When something goes through a metamorphosis, morphe, that's the, the, the Greek word there, but it's not a metamorphosis. The word morph or form, means the essential nature or character or something that is unchanging. In other words, because of the way Paul uses the Greek grammar and the actual word, he is protecting the full deity of Christ in that Christ has always existed as God. Equal with God and fully God, not less than God, not created by God. Yet, this word form also carries with it the idea that Jesus is the visible expression of an invisible God. Jesus is the only person of the Trinity who has a physical body. Is God the Father spirit? Yes. Does God the Father have a body? Does Jesus have a body? Yes. Is Jesus the out? Is Jesus, when, when, what did you say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Listen to John 17, 5, what Jesus says when he's praying in the high priestly prayer. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is Jesus saying about his glory? I shared with you, Father, the same glory before the world even existed. 
Hebrews 1.3 talks about Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So here's the issue. Is Jesus fully God? Yes. Is Jesus fully God with all the glory of God? Is Jesus in heaven, or could Jesus in heaven have said, you know what? I'm in heaven. I have all the angels worshiping me. I have all the attributes of God. I have the glory of God. I'm going to stay up here in heaven, and I'm going to greedily just hold on to that because those people down there don't deserve me to come, and I'm not coming to earth. Okay, that's Paul's point here. The point is, Paul says what? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. What does it say there? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ did not greedily seek his own advantage. Here's the, here's the staggering thing about this whole issue. Jesus already had by divine nature the rank and privilege and authority of being equal with God and sharing in all that God the Father is, yet he did not cling to it or hang on to it greedily. He did not look at it as a way to gain an advantage. Romans 15.3 For Christ did not please himself as that is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ could have clung on greedily. Christ could have said, you know what, I have selfish ambition, I have the right to be God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to that greedily, I'm going to get what's coming to me, and I'm not going to go down to earth. And he could have rightly done that. He could have rightly refused to come and suffer on earth and the cross because of who he was. He had every right to do that. But he submitted himself voluntarily to the will of his Father, even though he was fully God. So you've got to ask yourself a question. In the eternal counsel of the Trinity, before the world was created, when God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son were the only ones that existed, and they entered into the covenant of redemption to determine how they're going to save people, what was God's plan from all eternity? That Jesus would leave heaven and come to earth in fulfillment of God's will. Now, what was God's will for Jesus when he came to earth? Was it just he would hang around for a few years and do some cool stuff? No, Isaiah 53.10 says this prophecy about Jesus it was the will of the Lord to crush him he is put into grief when his soul makes an offering for sin it was God's will for Jesus to come to earth to die so here's the progression it starts out in heaven where Jesus has full rights and authority as God He's fully God. He's in the form of God. He's the visible expression of God. He's the glory of God. But Jesus did not greedily stay in heaven and say, I want to hold on to that. He left heaven and came to earth. So here's number two. The second action that shows that Jesus 
has this attitude. He made himself nothing. Though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, the progression moves from where? Heaven to earth. What does it say there? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He voluntarily chose to leave the glories of heaven and come to earth and suffer. Now, here's where we need to be very, very careful. What does verse 7 say? He emptied himself. If you do not understand this, you can, you, can, you can actually fall for a heresy. What does it specifically mean that Christ emptied himself or made himself nothing? Many liberal theologians have abused this term to say that Jesus gave up his divinity while on earth and lived only as an exalted man not as God in the flesh. Is that biblical? When Jesus came to earth as a man, okay, let's just look at this. In heaven, is, is Jesus God? Yes. When he comes to earth, he becomes a man, right? So no subtraction happens when he comes to earth, is it? But addition happens. What happens? He adds man to his godhood, but he doesn't subtract godhood to his manhood. Does that, does that make sense? When he comes to earth, he's the God-man. So when he emptied himself or he became nothing, we're not saying that Jesus ceased to be God. We're not saying he emptied himself as divinity. It means something different. Okay? I think the King James Version does give a good translation of this. It says he made himself of no reputation. It's probably a better translation. He made himself of no reputation. Jesus did not cease being God or in any way cease being equal with the Father, but instead he voluntarily laid aside the privileges that were his. That's, that's a better way to look at it. He voluntarily laid aside the privileges that were his. Not the deity, the privileges. Now, the text tells us two specific ways that he emptied himself. Two specific ways he laid aside his privileges. Two ways he, quote-unquote, became nothing of no reputation. First of all, he took upon the form of a slave or a servant. Hmm. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's interesting the word servants used there. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah... It talks about the suffering servant of the Lord. And we know that the suffering servant's Jesus, but listen to how it's talked about in Isaiah 53, 5. What type of servant did Jesus come to be? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with the stripes we were healed. That's the type of servant Jesus came to be a suffering servant. And that individual, or that, that original church in Philippi would have understood what it meant to be a slave. When it says he came being born as a servant, literally a bond servant, a slave, 
It means that you, you, he gave up all rights to become a servant. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 20, 26 through 28? It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What's the primary way Jesus serves us? What's the primary way he's a servant? By giving his life. Dying on the cross. So, he comes to earth as a a servant, a slave, to serve us primarily through the cross. But think about this also. He had to come as a man in order to die on the cross. So the second thing under this big category is is this this, this, uh, um, second way is that he became a man. He became a man. Now, at one point in time, Jesus was born of a virgin, and he was a real man. Did Jesus cry? If Jesus was in Joseph's carpenter shop and he hit a na- uh, his hammer on his hand, did he get bruised? Did he cuss? No. Did he get hungry? Okay. Did he get sleepy? Okay, so Jesus wasn't a ghost walking around. He was fully God, fully man. Why is that important for us? Hebrews 4, 15 tells us why it's important. We do not have a high priest, he's talking about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every temptation you and I have gone through, Jesus has gone through, but he never sinned. So he knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like he can identify with us because he came as a man. Okay? Now, the third action that Jesus voluntarily does is the lowest point of humiliation. Two specific ways. So the progression moves from heaven to earth as a servant, and ultimately the lowest point here is the cross. This is, this is the progression. Hopefully you guys see it. He starts in heaven, moves to earth. He's a man, not just any type of man, but a servant, a slave, and, and he identifies with us and all of our weaknesses and then goes to the cross. So two specific ways is this humiliation. He, did, he identifies with us as humans. What does it say there? Being found in human form... Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He identified with us. The first way was that he again experienced all the travails and struggles that we experience as human beings. He was subject to ridicule, temptation, heat, sweat, work, pain, suffering, and all of this he did not sin. But here's the most important point of humiliation. So you've got glory... Jesus starts in glory and ends at the humiliation of the cross. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We use the word cross a lot. We wear crosses around our necks. But in polite Roman society, if you use the word cross at the dinner table, it was considered a cuss word. It was so offensive. 
to both Jews and Gentiles. For you see, the cross was an object of scorn and ridicule for both Jews and Gentiles. For the Jew, it was a sign of being under God's curse. Only those who hung on a cross were God-damned. Don't take that wrong, the wrong way. You were damned, you were cursed, you were under the wrath of God if you hung on a cross. Now, ironically, was Jesus experiencing the wrath of God when he was hanging on the cross? Yes. A Messiah, the king, in the Jewish mind, and the Messiah, the king, would not come and hang on a cross. Now, to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to the Greeks, the cross was a filthy place for criminals and those who sought to commit treason against Rome. So the cross is a place of scorn and judgment and wrath. That's why Paul says, even death on a cross. Just to kind of emphasize, it's death, not just any type of death, death on a cross. And let me just give you, let me just ask you a question. During the time of Jesus' crucifixion, did not thousands of people die on crosses? Yes, there were two thieves that died right next to him. So, there's nothing in and of itself about dying on the cross per se. Let me just put it this way. Dying on the cross is a painful way to die. Nobody would want to be hanged on a cross. But did the two thieves on Jesus' side, did they experience the wrath of God while they were on the cross? They experienced our sin while they were on the cross. So Jesus not only experienced the the physical torture of what the cross was, he also experienced the, the, the spiritual anguish of what it means to be on the cross. That's the lowest point of humiliation. Jesus experienced the cup of God's wrath while he was on the cross. Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, very interesting terminology. What does Jesus say? Father, I don't want to drink the cup that's about to happen. You have to ask the question, what's the cup Jesus is going to have to drink? What is the cup? What was a cup that Jesus would have to drink until it was empty? Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Revelation 14, 9 through 10, we find that God will pour out the fury of the cup of his wrath on unbelievers and they will be made to drink all of it. This is the reality of an eternal hell. So Jesus, while on the cross, even death on a cross, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, drank fully to the last drop God's wrath that was aimed at sinners like us. He died as our substitute. Now why is this great news? Why is this great news for you and me? Could Jesus have rightfully, by all rights and privileges, as God glorified, stay in heaven? Does he owe us anything to leave? Was Jesus under any obligation to leave heaven and come die for us? No, no obligation whatsoever. Was he even under any ob obligation to create us? No. <coughs> so for the very fact that Jesus not only left heaven, came to earth as a man, not just any man, but the God-man, came as a servant, and then came to die a, a death, even death on a cross, as our substitute, is great news. 
when we come to Christ in faith alone and trust in His grace to save us, <coughs> excuse me, our sins are totally wiped out and we bear them no more. Jesus took the full punishment of God's wrath in our place. That's the lowest point of the hymn. You see the progression? We go from glory to humiliation. But then, is that the end of the story? Does Jesus stay on the cross? Does Jesus die and buried and rise again? Okay, we're going to see a huge upward turn. So it's reached the lowest point. Now we're going to pivot and go way up high. And there's a big therefore. So, God's decisive action towards His Son. We have this strong therefore in verse 9. Therefore, what does it say? God has highly exalted Him. <coughs> First of all, God has highly exalted Jesus. The word highly exalted is the strongest way of saying that Jesus is exalted to the highest station in all of the universe. He is sovereign over all the universe. Do you want you to notice something? Is there any progression here? Does it go boom, 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 boom? What does it do? <clears throat> he shoots right up, okay? So by virtue of going from glory to humiliation, God decisively exalts Jesus to the highest position. In all the universe. Colossians tells us in chapter 1, 16 and 19, For by Him, this is Jesus, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Second thing, what does God do to Jesus? Gives Him the name above every name. The name of Jesus is very important. What was God's name in the Old Testament? There's many names of God in the Old Testament. What was the main name for God in the Old Testament? Yahweh. Could anybody share the name Yahweh? Lord. Can anybody be called Lord? The Jews back then wouldn't even pronounce it because it was too sacred to even be pronounced. So for God to bestow upon somebody else His name above all names, would be unheard of. Who's the only one that deserves it? Jesus. Because He's equal with God. He is the triumphant, risen Savior. God gives Him the name that's above all names. Now, there's a lot of generic God talk out there. What does it say there? He has the name that is above every name. What does Acts 4.12 say? There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What's going to happen with Jesus' name? Verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. 
The whole idea of the name, we don't quite get this in our culture because names don't mean as much, but when, the, the idea that the name of Jesus carries the idea of in honor of the name of Jesus, that, that title he has as the King of kings and Lord of lords, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Jesus is sovereign and glorious. This is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because Isaiah forty-five twenty-three says, By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, this is where another heresy can come into play. What was the first heresy? Jesus stopped being God when he came to earth. If you take this wrong, okay, if I read this just um, like first reading, every body in all the world is going to bow and confess Jesus as Lord? Well, that obviously means everybody's going to be a Christian, right? No. This does not mean that everyone will become a Christian. This is not, that's universalism, the idea that everybody's going to go to heaven. No, this shows the absolute sovereignty of Christ that even those who pierced him, hate him, and have rejected him will still have to bow before him as the supreme ruler of all. Those who don't want to bow and confess Jesus as Lord right now will be made to, even in hell. And it doesn't mean they're saved. It means that Christ is still Lord. He's just their judge. He's still Lord, but he's their judge. Now, for us, he's Lord and Savior. Jesus doesn't stop being Lord because of what we do with him. Does that make sense? You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. Because who's in the driver's seat? I'm, I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Number one, you don't make him anything. He's Lord whether you do anything with him or not. Whether you were ever created, Jesus is Lord. We joyfully bow before Him as Lord. We confess Him as Lord. And, and that warning is better to do it today than to do it on that final day when you're made to. Now, Revelation 5.13 gives us a picture of this. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him that sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So it's a, it's a, um, it's a joy to be able to do that today. I mean, we're going to get to do that in heaven, but why not joyfully do that today? Now, when we confess, it says every tongue will confess. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? Confess it. It's our confession. To confess means to openly declare that we agree with God that Jesus is, is king. The word confess means to agree with God. Do you realize when you confess your sins, you're not telling God you have sins. He already knows. You are agreeing with God that what you've done is sinful. When you confess Jesus is Lord, you're agreeing with God that Jesus is Lord. You're openly confessing that. You're declaring that. You're living it, you're breathing it, you're telling the whole world, Jesus is my Lord. Now, what's the whole purpose of all of this? I want you to see how it goes full circle all the way back to here. How does the, how does the verse end? To the glory of God the Father. It all comes back to God's glory. Everything comes back to God's glory. God is glorified 
in the self-sacrificing, voluntary submission of Jesus and the obedient death on the cross. Now, deep theology, we've just looked at this progression. Jesus had glory in heaven. He did not want to grasp onto that, even though he had full rights to it. He left the glories of heaven. He came to earth as the God-man, not just any man, but he came as a servant to serve us and eventually to the lowest point of humiliation to die on the cross. And then God exalted him to the highest place so that we would worship him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember what I said, two purposes of the hymn. To instruct and to inspire. Why was this entire hymn given in the first place? As an example, as a sermon illustration of Christ's humility as a way for us to emulate. What does verse 5 tell us right before Paul gives this? Have this same attitude. What attitude, Paul? We're going to be like Jesus. We're not going to grasp on to selfish ambition. We are going to serve others. And we are going to be humble. We're not going to die on the cross for people, but we're going to emulate this whole idea that Jesus... Did Jesus put others above himself? Go, just go back for a moment. Go back and look at verse 2. Go back and look at verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Did Jesus do anything from selfish ambition or conceit? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Did Jesus count others more significant than himself? Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Did Jesus look out to the interests of others? Yes, in the most profound ways. How did he do it? He died on the cross. Okay. So, the purpose was to instruct and to inspire us. To instruct us on some deep theology of who Jesus is, but also to inspire us to be like Jesus. So what are we to do? How does this progression of Christ, how does it inspire us? What does it motivate us to do? Well, let me just give you some, some application points here, some things to think about. We are to voluntarily submit to the will of, father, of the Father and not seek to be the Lord of our own life. Do we voluntarily submit to the will of the Father? Jesus did not grasp on to what was rightfully His. Now, there's nothing that we rightfully have. But what do we often grab onto? Sin that so easily entangles. What did Jesus do? He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. We're to empty ourselves. What does Jesus say? Die to yourself every day. Deny yourself. Take up our cross daily. Follow him seeking God's glory and God's kingdom instead of our own. We are to humbly be obedient to whatever He calls us to do. Obviously, we're not called to die on a cross. That's Jesus' job, and He's completed it. But because of His death and resurrection, we're to bow before Him as sovereign ruler and confess Him as Lord. So let me recap these 11 verses. Paul starts out and says, listen, I want to remind you of who you are in the gospel. In order to live a life worthy of the gospel, you need to know who you are in the gospel. You're loved by Jesus. You're in Christ. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have fellowship with Christ. You can be who God wants you to be because of the new person you are in Christ. So make my joy complete, church. 
I want you to be loving. I want you to have the same attitude. I want you to be unified. I don't want you to be selfish. I don't want you to be conceited. I want you to put others in front of yourselves. I want you to have a Christ-like humility. I want you to be unified in humility. As a matter of fact, church, I want you to have the same attitude as Jesus. And I'm going to show you what that attitude was. Jesus started in heaven. Didn't grasp onto that even though he had full rights. He came to earth. He served others. He did not seek others' advantage, or he didn't seek out his own advantage. He died on the cross, and God exalted him. So you look at that church. Look at that example of Jesus. Have that same attitude. You lower yourself. You humble yourself. You walk in humility. You count others better than yourselves. And when you do that, Paul says, you're making my joy complete. I'm over here rotten in prison. But if I hear that you're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel in humility, that's going to make me joyful. So, how do you make this pastor joyful? You do what Paul wants us to do. You make my joy complete, but all of us, all of our joys complete by walking in Christ-like humility. And that's not what the world is used to. And it doesn't come easy. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the hardest things you can do. But we're called to do it by God's grace. All right. Questions and comments? For clarifications. I'm glad I got through this. I thought I was going to be sneezing the whole night. Any questions? Baba Louie. Okay. Uh, can you clarify on that? Uh... Page 10, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For uh, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, such you by his poverty might become rich. Mm-hmm. So, what does rich mean? Yeah, it's a spiritual aspect. It's almost like this whole thing. I don't know where that verse Let me find the verse on my sheet. It's, it's on page 10, bottom. Okay, I have a different page. Oh, I, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. Now, it's not talking about monetary riches there, because it's talking about he had the full access to all the riches of God in glory. It's fully God. Okay. He lived in heaven with all the riches of heaven. But instead of staying up there, what does it say there? He became, for your sake, for our sake, he became poor. Not like he went around with... I mean, obviously, Jesus you know, didn't have a lot of money. It's talking about the fact that he became a servant. He became a slave. He went to the cross. He, 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 became, he, he experienced the humiliation of, of becoming a human a servant poor for our sake. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich, not material, but through Jesus' leaving heaven, coming to earth, and dying for you, you might experience all of the spiritual blessings of what it means to be in Christ and the riches of the inheritance that you'll have in heaven and all of the things that come to you as a child of God. That may include material blessings, but most often it is the spiritual richness that comes because of Christ's decision to leave heaven, come to earth, die for you, and rise again so that you might experience all the blessings that are spiritually in him. Does does that make sense? Well, yeah, I just wanted to see if you were going to include... Richness as, as, as like well, monetary richness, some of that, as well as other riches. And I just want you to clarify that. Later. It could be, okay. but it may not be. 
That sounds pretty good to me. Does that sound pretty good to you? Okay. I'm not going to outright say, I'm not going to say God's never going to bless you materially. Because he does bless people materially. But I'm not going to say God will always bless you materially. Because God may not. But even if God took everything away, the fact that you spiritually have salvation and you have your inheritance in heaven, that should be enough to give you joy because that can never be taken away from you. And I think of Job. Yeah, Job. Perfect example. Yeah, but he went through a long, long, yeah. long time. Yeah. We, don't want, we always want to jump to the end where he, yeah. where he gets everything back. Yeah, yeah but we don't yeah. want to go through the long, long time. He had a long time. Russell, were you going to say something? Well, I just... I'm coming back here that, so you'll have a question. So... You know that we are we do have a treasure, but our treasure is in heaven. So, you know whatever it is here doesn't really matter because, yeah, like you said, the eternal yeah. life. Yeah, you know that he his riches that he had was his glory and godness yeah. for his God, mm-hmm. and yeah, he got that back, and then that's how we get to partake in that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes your word faith people, like your televangelists, will misapply that verse, and they'll say, look. You know, Jesus wants you to be rich. And they'll, look, they'll focus on that word rich and say, that's God's will for you to always be rich. And so that, that's kind of maybe what you're talking about yeah. there, that, that that is not what he's talking about there, that you're always going to be rich because of what Jesus did for you. Rich there in the context does not mean material wealth. Um, as a matter of fact, go to Ephesians. Just go over one, one book. If you want to know what the riches are of Christ... Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the longest sentence in the New Testament, one long sentence. We won't read the whole thing, but Paul tells us in verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verses 4 through 14 are a list of all those spiritual blessings. We've been chosen, we've been predestined, Jesus died for us, His grace has been poured out on us richly, um, He's lavished His grace upon us, we have an inheritance, we've been given the promised Holy Spirit, all these blessings, but notice He says, they're spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So we are guaranteed because of Christ, all the spiritual blessings, we may or may not experience material blessings, but we will experience all the spiritual blessings. And some of those we won't get until we get to heaven, like a glorified body any other questions yes Jerry I always had trouble with uh, tonight uh, his names above all other names and you see the uh, Mexicans have the name same name oh Jesus yeah Jesus how does oh yeah where does that actually come from you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not an expert on Hispanic naming culture. <laughs> um, I think that in a Roman, like, well, this is my guess, so I may be wrong. Okay, so a lot of the Hispanic culture is influenced by Roman Catholic, right. like the missionaries that came over to like Mexico and places like that. Right. And so it could be as a way to honor Jesus. They name their kids after Jesus the way they would name their daughter Mary. And so for them, Jesus is a name. After Jesus, I don't. I wouldn't impugn their motives and say their their kids a savior or whatever. I think they're just doing it as a way to honor Jesus. Um, and, and you probably say, you know, I have a problem with somebody else having Jesus's name because he has a name above all names. Um, there's a guy in Miami, Florida. I don't know if he's still around. This was about ten years ago. Um, his name was Oscar de la Corinth something. That wasn't Oscar de la Hoya, but he was in my he was in Florida. He pronounced himself as Jesus. 
and he had a church. I saw video footage of this. He had a church where people came and they sang praise songs to him as Jesus. He had 666 tattooed on his fingers. He had multiple wives and girlfriends and he owned a couple of casinos. But he was Jesus. He changed his name. That's blasphemy. Okay. Now, a Hispanic person named their kid Jesus, I wouldn't go as far as to say that's blasphemy. What that guy did is blasphemy. Is blasphemy. Okay. And I think maybe as, as evangelical Christians, we have a hard time with anybody having the name Jesus because that's the, the name above all names. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't know the exact answer to that, but it could be just from maybe that Catholic background. They want to honor Jesus by naming their kid after him. Yeah. Before I was saved, I couldn't understand why yeah. they could have that name. Yeah, and you and, couldn't? No, I didn't okay. want to be. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I didn't want to be equal to God. Right, yeah, yeah. All right, good question. Any other questions? You, you talked about motivation. Yeah. You know, ways of motivating people, mm-hmm. one was wrong and one was right. Could you go over that second one? Because I think I've got a third way of motivating people. Well, I, I, okay. One way to motivate people is through guilt and legalism and, okay. and making it, you need to do this because it's your duty right. and you minister guilt to people. There's no, there's no gospel empowerment. It's just you do this out of sheer willpower because you have to do it. The other one is a gospel-driven motivation that says you do this because of who you are in Christ. Christ has given you the power. He's, he's, he's giving you the Holy Spirit. You do this because you want to, because of what Christ has done for you. You do it out of gratitude for what he's done for you, not because it's, it's per se a duty. Okay. So do you have a third one? Possibly. Okay. I, it may, it's real close to the second one. <clears throat> okay. And the idea is that you want above and beyond that, that you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and salvation, but above and beyond that, to please God, uh, you want to do what He wants to do, so um, to, uh, to make Him happy. I guess it's, a it's the same thing. Yeah, you, yeah. Your desire is to please God out of the sheer fact that He saved you and changed you and He can empower you to do that. Because it, because God, I'd say, because God wants the best for you. And the thing is, if you're pleasing God, then, then maybe you of course, maybe you're thinking, maybe I'm thinking of, of a selfish admissus there. You know? No, I don't, I don't know how that would, pleasing I mean, God would be selfish. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, if you're trying to please God, then maybe you're trying to get something from him. Oh, if you're pleasing God out of wrong motives. Yeah. Like, I'm doing this so God will bless me. Yeah. As opposed to, I'm doing this because God is God and I love him. Yes. Okay, there's a difference there. Yes. Okay, yeah, that's motivation. Or, or that's motives. Not necessarily motivation, but motives. Uh-huh. One is to motivate you to do something, then once you do it out of the motives. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Is it warm in here tonight, or is it just me? Okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm about to die. Next week, we won't turn the air conditioning on, but I may turn it off. But the kids' room, they say, it's freezing. I'm like, it's freezing. I'm about to die. All right. Anything else, or are we ready to go? All right. All right, we've got time. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll let you go. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. And, and Lord, if, if we don't come away with anything, help us just to worship you as the exalted Christ, the name above all names, and, and just to love you and worship you for your um, leaving the glories of heaven and coming to be obedient to death on a cross. And, Lord, help us to look at that and have the same Christ-like humility for one another. Uh, Lord, help us to practically go out of this room and find areas in our lives where we can um, be humble, 
Uh, we can serve others. Uh, we can be of the same mind. We can um, have the Christ-like attitude. And Lord, in those times where we find ourselves tempted and we find ourselves struggling, uh, remind us of the power of the gospel. Remind us we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, help us to, to rely upon you. Um, and we thank you for that grace that you give us in those times of need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.